This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian Archive Long Read. I'm James McCauley. I am a journalist uh, currently with The Washington Post, where I contribute to the opinion page. And I wrote in 2018 a long article for The Guardian about, broadly speaking, the question of anti-Semitism in France and also the question of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in France, entitled How the Murders of Two Elderly Jewish Women Shook France. The article was about two different murders of elderly Jewish women, one of whom was a Holocaust survivor right after Macron was elected in 2017 and during his first term. And now, of course, we are on his second term. Macron won the Elysee Palace by handily defeating Marine Le Pen, uh, the leader of the far right, and specifically the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, one of the most incorrigible and infamous Holocaust deniers in modern Europe today and who has been that for decades. It was very interesting politically, but then also personally, you know, I have a PhD in modern French history and specifically in Jewish history in France. Um, Oh, and I should also say, despite my very Anglo-Stanian name, I happen to be Jewish myself. And so all of those things made me very, very interested in the strange echoes and sort of dissonant repeats of some of the historical themes that I had studied for years in the contemporary arena. And the reason that these, these murders resonated so much was, of course, the sort of eternal preoccupation in France with the legacy of Vichy. That refers to the government of the southern part of France during Nazi occupation. It was nominally autonomous of Nazi rule, but was complicit in the persecution of, its, of France's own Jewish citizens. And so there is that reflex. Um, and they were particularly fraught in that moment because on the heels of a tidal wave of Islamist terrorist violence um, from 2012, when there was the murder of students and a rabbi at a Jewish school in the south of France. 2015 begins with Charlie Hebdo. November of 2015 is the Bataclan. Nice uh, on Bastille Day in 2016. So France really is a hotspot for Islamist terrorist violence. And the fact that there were a number of overtly and undeniably anti-Semitic terror attacks and murders committed by Islamist terrorists created a sort of an uneasy alliance between the center 
sort of consensus opinion that absolutely and rightly so condemns anti-Semitism in all its forms as it should, and the far right, which seized on these cases as a means of underscoring their point, which from the beginning has been that Islam in general is incompatible with the French Republic. And that was a big part of the article that I wrote then, and that specific point is a huge part of the tensions that we're seeing in France today. Paris, a couple of days ago, was home to one of the largest demonstrations that we have seen against anti-Semitism. Something like 180,000 people took to the streets, according to Le Monde's figures. And you know, that's really significant. And it goes to show sort of how deep and how seriously the French government has taken a lot of the concern about anti-Semitism, which is very real. But it is, it is nevertheless a complicated endeavor in a country like France because, you know, you have this huge demonstration of people who rightly wish to condemn anti-Semitism and show their support for a more tolerant society. But then you also have, you know, members of the far right joining the march. And the presence of agitators like that means that some other people don't want to be associated with the larger cause, however legitimate it may be, because in their eyes, the presence of far-right actors means that if you participate, you are sort of legitimating their message in some way. And I mean, th these tensions are exactly what I was writing about at the time, sort of how to combat one prejudice, one very real, very historic, very deadly prejudice without either indirectly or inadvertently supporting or giving airtime to another. And I think that that is the central idea of what these two murders from 2017 and 2018 show and a lot of the debate that we're seeing today also shows. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. How the Murders of Two Elderly Jewish Women Shook France by James McCauley The body landed in the courtyard, not far from the building's bins. Shortly before 5am on the 4th of April 2017, a 65-year-old woman was hurled from the third-floor balcony of a social housing project in the 11th arrondissement of Paris, a rapidly gentrifying area on the eastern side of the French capital. An hour earlier, that same woman, a retired doctor and kindergarten teacher, had been asleep in the small apartment where she had lived for the past 30 years. When she woke up, she saw the face of her 27-year-old neighbour in the darkness. The man, who still lived with his family on the building's second floor, had first stormed into another apartment, whose tenants had locked themselves in a bedroom and called the police. By the time he climbed up the fire escape into his victim's apartment, three officers were present in the building. The autopsy would later reveal that the woman's skull had been crushed, most likely with the telephone on her bedside table. Before and after his victim lost consciousness, the assailant beat her until the nightgown she was wearing, white with a blue floral pattern, was soaked with her blood. He then dragged her body to the balcony of the apartment and threw her over the railing, exactly the same way, he told prosecutors, 
as John Travolta does in The Punisher, the film he had been watching before the attack. I killed the shaitan, he yelled from the balcony, according to testimonies given by neighbours. Shaitan is an Arabic word for devil. Neighbours heard him repeatedly chant, Allahu Akbar. The victim was Lucy Atal, an Orthodox Jewish woman who sometimes used the name Lucy Atal Halimi. The perpetrator who confessed to the crime was Kobili Traoré, a Franco-Malian Muslim. He later told authorities he knew that his victim was Jewish. According to her family, Atal had long felt afraid of Traoré. Her brother, William Atal, told me that Traoré had verbally abused her in the building's elevator and she had said she would only feel safe if he were in prison. In fact, Kobali Traoré may never go to prison for the killing. He has been in psychiatric detention since the night of the crime and a French judge could rule that he is mentally unfit to stand trial. In the immediate aftermath of Atal's death, there was virtually no public discussion of her killing. With the upcoming presidential election dominating headlines, the defenestration of a Jewish woman in the 11th arrondissement of Paris was treated by the mainstream French press as a fait divers, the term used to describe a minor news story, which led to considerable outcry in the Jewish community. But after the victory of Emmanuel Macron, the case returned to the forefront, becoming a new frontline in France's culture wars among the most explosive in Europe. The French Republic is founded on a strict universalism which seeks to transcend, or, depending on your viewpoint, efface, particularity in the name of equality among citizens. In a nation that tends to discourage identity politics as communautaire, and therefore hostile to national cohesion, the state not only frowns on hyphenated identities, but does not even officially recognise race either as a formal category or a lived experience. Since 1978, it has been illegal in France to collect census data on ethnic or religious difference, on the grounds that these categories could be manipulated for racist political ends. But eliminating race did not eliminate racism or racist violence. In the case of Lucie Attal, the inescapable fact of the matter is that a Muslim killed a Jew in a society where those distinctions are supposed to be irrelevant. More than a year after the fact, exactly how to label Attal's death remains a matter of bitter and perhaps unresolvable debate. To examine the case is to examine the fractures of the French Republic, the contradictions in the stories a nation tells itself. Traoré has vehemently denied that anti-Semitism played a role in his crime, claiming instead that he acted in the throes of a psychotic episode triggered by cannabis. But for William Attal, the only way to understand his sister's death is as an act of anti-Semitic violence. He knew very clearly that Judaism was the motor of her life, that she had all the external signs of Jewishness, Attal said. And when we met in a cafe in the Paris suburb of Nogent-sur-Marne, he wore an anonymous red baseball cap instead of anything that might identify him as Jewish. We have the obligation to cover the head, but we do not have the obligation to wear a kippah, he said. Understand? In February 2018, 
after considerable public outcry from Jewish organisations who accused the criminal justice system of a cover-up, a French judge added the element of anti-Semitism to the charges against Traoré. But the case is far from closed. In July 2018, a second court-ordered psychiatric examination declared that the perpetrator was not of sound mind and was unfit to stand trial. A third examination is forthcoming. If he cannot be held accountable for his actions, Traoré cannot, legally speaking, be said to have had a motive. There is the possibility that Atal will have officially died in a random act of violence, as if she had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. During the months of confusion, indecision and silence that followed the killing, people from every side of France's political debate seized upon the case as evidence of whatever position they already held. In time, the story of Lucie Attal would become the inspiration for any number of politicised narratives, hardly any of which took into account the woman who had died, or even her actual name. On the 10th of April, one week after the killing and three weeks before the presidential election's first round, Marine Le Pen sat down for an interview with the newspaper Le Figaro. Two days earlier, Le Pen had shocked much of the country by claiming that the Vichy government's participation in the Holocaust was not France and insisted that France was not responsible for the so-called Veldive roundup of Parisian Jews in 1942. It was time, she said, for the French to be proud to be French again. The Veldive roundup ranks among the darkest days in modern French history and is known even to schoolchildren as a synonym for national shame. On the 16th of July, 1942, approximately 13,000 Jews were arrested and detained in the now-demolished Vélodrome d'Hiver racing arena in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. From there, they were deported to Nazi concentration camps. Few of the deportees ever returned. What lingers in public consciousness is this. It was French police officers who carried out this assault on their fellow citizens, not their Nazi occupiers. Pressing Le Pen on her Veldive comments, the journalist from Le Figaro asked how she would respond to the condemnations her remarks had elicited from Jewish groups and the State of Israel. For the daughter of a convicted Holocaust denier trying to de-demonise her party, these kind of questions risked giving Le Pen precisely the kind of publicity she was desperate to avoid. So she changed the subject. What I'd rather we talk about is Islamist anti-Semitism, Le Pen said. She had an anecdote ready. Several days ago, a 61-year-old woman was thrown, defenestrated from the third floor because she was Jewish. She was threatened and called a dirty Jew by her neighbour for several days. And that we never talk about. During a presidential election campaign that revolved around questions of national identity, Le Pen became the first public figure to discuss the killing of Attal. Yet Le Pen did not mention Attal by name, and she was wrong about her age. During the interview, Le Pen's Twitter account mentioned that the victim, again unnamed, had been 70. In fact, she had been 65. But the details about the actual woman who had been killed were never the point. 
On one level, Le Pen's rhetorical pivot to Islamist anti-Semitism was an attempt to distance herself from her party's history of Holocaust denial and to court Jewish voters anxious about the rise of Islamist terrorism. But for Le Pen, the killing of Attal, even before any of the details were known, served a much broader purpose. It was perhaps the most emotive example of what had been the Front National's underlying message throughout the campaign, and which of late had trickled into the mainstream right. That the French Republic and Islam were fundamentally incompatible. On the 10th of July, Kobili Traoré was formally interviewed by the judge investigating the case. Three months earlier, on the night of the crime, he had been taken into custody, and police discovered that he already had a considerable criminal record, having served time for aggravated violence and drug dealing. But when police tested him that night, the toxicology report showed a high level of cannabis in his bloodstream, and his behaviour was erratic enough that he was immediately sent to a psychiatric hospital. There he was examined by a respected psychiatrist, Daniel Zaguri, who concluded that he was not of sound mind and was therefore not in a fit state to be interviewed by prosecutors. In the months that followed, Traoré remained in the hospital, under warrant, but without being formally charged. When the investigative judge finally interviewed Traoré in July, the young man insisted that anti-Semitism had not been his motive. I have never had problems with Jews before, Traoré said. He claimed that the killing had happened during a bout of temporary insanity. On the night of the 4th of April, he had been with a friend, he said, watching The Punisher. Before turning on the television, the two had gone to evening prayers at the Omar Mosque in the Rue Moron, according to an investigative account by the French journalist Noémie Aliwa. Mohamed Hamami, that mosque's former imam, was expelled from France in 2012, when Traoré was a teenager, for having allegedly incited hatred in sermons. Traoré, who by all accounts was not a particularly observant Muslim, told the judge that he and a friend had gone to pray that night because he had not been feeling well. I was feeling like I'd been oppressed by an exterior force, he said in his interview, according to the transcript. A demonic force. The young man defined that demonic force as a kind of delirium over which he had no control, induced by the several joints he had smoked. According to Le Monde, Traoré smoked between 10 and 15 joints a day. Asked why he had entered Atal's apartment, he had no answer. I still do not know, he said. It could have fallen on anyone. The DRS, my family, Traoré claimed, referring to the family whose apartment he had first entered before climbing up from their balcony to the apartment of the woman he killed. Yet it did not fall on anyone else. It fell on Lucy Attal. At one point in Traoré's interview with prosecutors, he was interrogated about what he had said at the scene of the crime. Investigator, your family heard and your sister and your mother have confirmed that you were not feeling well and that you were repeating Shaitan, Shaitan. What does that mean? Traoré. It's the demon in Arabic. Investigator. Do you speak Arabic? Traoré. No. Investigator. Doesn't it seem bizarre that you should designate 
Atal as the devil in a language you don't speak. In Zagouri's report, seen by Le Monde, the psychiatrist concluded that it was unlikely the killing was a premeditated anti-Semitic hate crime. However, the psychiatrist saw plenty of anti-Semitic mechanisms at work, including Traoré's own confession that he had somehow been triggered by the Torah and the menorah he saw in Atal's apartment. In his report, Zagori pointed out that the particular form delirious episodes take is always shaped by society's atmosphere and world events. Today, it is common to observe, during delirious episodes among subjects of the Muslim religion, an anti-Semitic theme. The Jew is on the side of evil, the evil one, he wrote. What is normally a prejudice turns into delirious hatred. This, he concluded, is precisely what happened once Traoré broke into Atal's apartment. The fact that she was Jewish immediately demonized her and amplified his delusional experience and caused the barbaric surge of which she was the unfortunate victim. Thank you for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash audio long read. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Lucie Attal's apartment block, number 30, Rue de Vaucouleurs, 
is a classic habitation à loyer modéré, or HLM, one of the many social housing projects developed in this part of France in the early 1980s to provide residents, many of them immigrants, with affordable housing in a fairly central location. In recent years, the neighbourhood has become the kind of place where trendy cafes, natural wine bars and experimental restaurants with months-long waiting lists seem to anchor every block. A squat, angular structure plastered with grimy grey tiles on a short, treeless street, the apartment block is as far as central Paris gets from 19th-century grandeur. But the Rue de Vaucouleur is hardly an example of the social and ethnic territorial apartheid decried by then Prime Minister Manuel Valls in January 2015, as he lamented the rise of homegrown Islamist extremism following the Charlie Hebdo attack. It is also a remarkably diverse neighbourhood, which appears at first glance to be a testament to the success of the French social model of integration, not its failures. Local residents describe a far more complex reality than often appears in public discussions of the killing. One of Atal's neighbours, Faim Mohammed, aged 50, told me he had lived in the building since 1997. Life was cool, he said, insisting that the only tensions he has ever felt came after Atal's death, not before. Since the murder, everyone is suspicious. They're worried if someone is following them when they enter the building. Another man from Morocco, who declined to give his name, was Atal's neighbour on the third floor. I met him as he was bringing in groceries one afternoon, and his eyes filled with tears when I asked him if he knew the woman who had been killed. She was someone who was very good, he said, adding that she had designated him her Shabos Goy, because he would do little household tasks for her on Shabbat that she could not do for herself. He said he had been on vacation when the killing happened visiting family in Morocco. If I were there, I would have intervened, but I was not, he said. A Muslim himself, he was adamant on one point. A Muslim would not do this. But one reason the case became so notorious is that it fit into what has become a common narrative. France is the only country in Europe where Jews are periodically murdered for being Jewish. No fewer than 12 Jews have been killed in France in six separate incidents since 2003. Sébastien Selam, Ilan Halimi, Jonathan Sandler, Gabriel Sandler, Arye Sandler, Miriam Monsonego, Johan Cohen, Philippe Bram, François-Michel Sada, Yoav Hatab, Lucy Attal and Mireille Canol. In each of these cases, at least one of the perpetrators was from what the French call minorité visible, or visible minorities, which typically refers to those of North African or West African descent. In most cases, the perpetrators have been linked with some form of extremist Islam. In nearly every case, the victims have been either identifiably Jewish or personal acquaintances of the perpetrator. Almost all perpetrators and victims have been lower middle class residing in the same diverse neighbourhoods, the same streets, or even the same buildings. In 2006, for instance, there was the notorious murder of Ilan Halimi, in which the so-called Gang des Barbares, a band of French-born children of Muslim immigrants from West Africa and North Africa, lured the 23-year-old Halimi 
who sold mobile phones off the Boulevard Voltaire, on a date with a pretty girl. They had hoped to extract €450,000 in ransom money from Halimi's parents, whom they assumed to be rich because they were Jews. But the Halimis lived in Bagneau, the same low-income banlieue as the gang members themselves. Ilan Halimi was imprisoned and tortured in the basement of a public housing project for three weeks. He was found on the train tracks in saint genevieve de bois to the south of Paris, his body naked and burned. For Rashid Benzine, a scholar of Islam and a well-known French public commentator, these killings are best understood in the context of what he calls post-colonial anti-Semitism. For me, this is a holdover from the colonization of Algeria, linked to the treatment of Algerian Jews compared with Muslim natives, he said. In 1870, for instance, the so-called Crémieux Decree secured full French citizenship for all Jewish subjects residing in Algeria, whereas Arab Muslims remained under the infamous Code de l'Indigénat, which stipulated an inferior legal status, essentially until 1962. The legal disparity continued even after Algeria won independence, when hundreds of thousands of former colonial subjects from North Africa continued to arrive in metropolitan France. Jews like the Attal family, originally from the Algerian city of Constantine, arrived in France as citizens. Muslims, however, had to apply to the government for the privilege of citizenship. Benzine also noted the unfortunate reality that the Palestinian tragedy fuels the perception among many Muslims that we somehow have the Jews of France to blame. Another factor, he said, is the so-called concurrence des mémoires. We have this competition of who's suffering most, Benzine said. Many French citizens of West African origin, for instance, argue that while the French state has invested fully in preserving the memory of the Holocaust, it has made little effort to preserve the memory of slavery. The disparity is a fact, and it's true that many black people say, look what they do for Jewish people, and there's nothing for us. Louis-Georges Tain, an activist and the former director of the Representative Council of France's Black Associations, C.R.A.N., told me recently, Paris is home to one of the world's premier Holocaust museums and research centres, and a black plaque adorns the façade of nearly every building in the city from which a Jewish child was deported during the Second World War. All that commemorates slavery in Paris, the capital of a former slave-trading nation, are two small, nondescript statues. The only museum that documents this history is in the overseas department of Guadeloupe, nearly 7,000 kilometres from mainland France. But the concurrence des mémoires has also become a trope in contemporary French anti-Semitism, with those such as the Franco-Cameroonian comedian Dieudonné Mbala Mbala engaging in Holocaust denial supposedly as a means of attacking Jewish power and insulting what they see as establishment narrative of the past. Tain said he could understand that frustration, but not its expression. The anger should not be targeted towards Jewish people, he said, but against the state. The battle over anti-Semitism in contemporary France often comes down to a war of words. 
few would dispute the existence or even the virulence of anti-Semitism. According to statistics announced by the Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, on the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht earlier this month, anti-Semitic incidents in France have increased by 69% in the first nine months of 2018. Among those incidents were the torching of two kosher shops in the Paris suburbs and a Jewish teenager being slashed in the face with a utility knife. For Philippe, this significance of the problem is not up for discussion. Every aggression perpetrated against one of our fellow citizens because they are Jewish resounds like a new shattering of glass, the Prime Minister wrote. But when it comes to naming the perpetrators or labelling particular acts, this certitude collapses. Much of the French government and the French press can seem at a loss for words. For many on the political right, anti-Semitism is essentially a straightforward problem, which the left strategically ignores, downplays or denies. It's very simple, Alain Fankilkraut, one of France's most prominent public intellectuals, told me earlier this year. The new anti-Semitism is an import. It comes to us from the exterior. It's among the gifts, the contributions of immigration to French society. This is not entirely accurate. If the perpetrators in anti-Semitic crimes are often from immigrant backgrounds, they are almost always also French citizens, a distinction often lost in the public debate. Fankilkraut, now 69, is himself the son of immigrants. Polish Jews who came to France to escape persecution and who eluded the roundups of the early 1940s. A member of the Académie Française, France's most elite literary circle, he is now something of a public contrarian, a former leftist who uses his best selling books and radio presence to bemoan what he sees as a nation in inexorable decline. What particularly aggravates Fankilkraut and his conservative allies about the debate around anti Semitism in France is what they see as a widespread refusal to name the problem, that is, to declare unambiguously that the primary threat to France's Jews comes from France's Muslims. For much of the left, this amounts to a dangerously crude generalisation about France's largest minority group, which itself is the target of a constant stream of hateful rhetoric, from the covers of Charlie Hebdo to the regular pronouncements of sitting members of the French government. Muslims, too, are frequent victims of hate crimes. In June 2018, French authorities thwarted a right-wing plot to kill veiled women, imams and other Muslims at a network of halal groceries, mosques and community centres across France. Authorities have charged a group of ten conspirators, one woman and nine men, for terrorist activity. The alleged ringleader was a former police officer. Cécile Aldoui, a scholar who has written extensively on political rhetoric, puts the question this way. How can you denounce a new form of anti-Semitism that would be perpetrated only by Muslims without targeting all Muslims as a threat to society? Even the phrase, the new anti-Semitism, is contested. If the old anti-Semitism was associated with France's Catholic far-right, which has hardly disappeared. The new anti-Semitism is today used almost exclusively to describe Muslim hatred of Jews. In that sense, many on the left believe that naming the problem actually makes it worse, enshrining difference in a society that officially recognises none and repeating the kind of racial stereotypes that only exacerbate social divisions. But others, 
both on the right and in the Jewish community. Ask whether Attal and the other French Jews who have been killed since 2003 are collateral damage in an egalitarian social project that was always doomed to fail. They often decry what they call ostrich politics, what they see as the willful blindness of the left with regard to Islam. One conservative I spoke to, the Jewish historian Georges Bensusson, echoed this point. He has been embroiled in a debate about racism and Islamophobia since 2015, when, in the course of a heated debate on a radio show hosted by Fankielkraut a month before the Paris attacks, he said, In Arab families in France, and everyone knows it but no one wants to say it, anti-Semitism is something babies drink in with their mother's milk. Under France's stringent hate speech laws, a number of claimants charged Ben Susson with inciting racial hatred by using reductive blanket statements. He was acquitted in March 2017, one month before Attal's death, but during the period that French authorities were struggling with how exactly to label the killing, the Ben Susson trial was a constant point of reference. For Ben Susson, his recent trial was a symptom of the much larger problem, the hesitation to acknowledge the truth. He noted that, despite the persistence of anti-Semitism among Front National members and supporters, none of the anti-Semitic murders we've seen, in France in recent years, have been committed by the extreme right. All were perpetrated by Muslims, even as most journalists continue to blame the extreme right. Bensusson is correct that mainstream media outlets refrained from emphasising the Muslim background of Kobili Traoré. But it is hardly the case that they blame the far right. It is also hard to defend the claim that French Muslims are somehow spared public scrutiny. To take one example, what Muslim women wear outside their homes has been among the most frequently debated questions in France over recent years. Meanwhile, political rhetoric around Islam has become increasingly extreme. Nearly every major candidate for the French presidency in 2017 had an official position on Islam, and Emmanuel Macron is still slated to announce a proposal to reform the practice of Islam in France. When it comes to anti-Semitism, members of the French government have emphasised that they find themselves in something of an impossible situation. Ensuring the safety of certain citizens while preventing the collective demonization of others. The state takes the security threat very seriously, dispatching heavily armed reserve officers to guard nearly every major Jewish school, temple and community centre in the country. But for politicians, finding the right words to describe this situation remains acutely difficult. To identify the phenomenon and to understand the different ways it works is not the same thing as identifying potential authors of future attacks. We should pay real attention to the Muslims who feel stigmatized by this. Frédéric Poutier, the head of the French government's interministerial delegation against racism and anti-Semitism, told me recently, you have to pay very close attention to the words you choose and how you say them. But at the same time, we have to say something. On the 16th of July, 2017, France's new president, Emmanuel Macron, gave a speech at a ceremony to mark the 75th anniversary of the Valdive Roundup, speaking at length about France's complicity in Nazi crimes. Standing alongside his invited guest, 
the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Macron then turned to the present day, mentioning the name of the woman whose case Jewish groups and public intellectuals had, for months, been citing as the latest example of France's indifference to anti-Semitism. But the name he used was not Lucy Attal. Despite the denials of the murderer, judicial officials must now search for full clarity on the death of Sarah Halimi, Macron said. Calling her Sarah Halimi was not a novel choice. Ever since the killing first made headlines, that had been the name most commonly used to identify the victim. Yet Sarah Halimi was not necessarily the way she was known to her family or in official documents. Sarah was Lucy Attal's Hebrew name, while the surname Halimi came from her former husband, Yaakov Halimi, a psychologist she had divorced decades earlier. How the woman known in her lifetime as Lucy Attal became Sarah Halimi after she died is a detail no one can quite explain. But the name only intensified the symbolic resonance of her case. The name Sarah happens to be the label the Nazis uniformly used to identify their female Jewish victims, who were stripped of their individuality along with their lives. Halimi also carried its own grim associations. In 2006, the torture and murder of Ilan Halimi became a national scandal, not only because of the brutality of the crime, but also because French authorities at the time had initially refused to acknowledge that his killers had anti-Semitic motivations. Thus, by the summer of 2017, Sarah Halimi had come to be seen by many as a new Ilan Halimi, the latest victim not only of Islamist anti-Semitism, but also of government silence and possibly even indifference. I think Sarah Halimi was the most resonant for the Jewish community, the most Jewish name, Haim Kosia, France's chief rabbi, told me. For some, the recurrence of the two names was striking. Gilles-William Goldnadel, the lawyer for Attal's family and a well-known hardline right-wing columnist, disputes that the association between his client and Ilan Halimi was a calculated political move. But he acknowledges that names can be powerful public symbols. We can consider that Sarah Halimi is the name of the syndrome for the ideological reticence to recognise reality, he said when we met in his office earlier this year. Like Ilan Halimi before her, Sarah Halimi soon became less a real human being and more a metaphor put to use in France's culture wars. In most accounts, she was portrayed without nuance or individuality. In April 2018, Sarah Halimi, rather than Lucy Attal, became the centrepiece of a widely publicised book entitled Le Nouvel Antisémitisme en France, a collection of essays by prominent journalists and public intellectuals. We have to ask ourselves if her death was only an accident or whether it testifies to the spirit of the times, says the preface. Again, the allusion to the earlier Halimi case was clear. Such a convergence of silences will have represented a perfect model of public denial. Of all the events on the Parisian social calendar, none quite compares to the annual dinner of the Representative Council of French Jewish Institutions, or CRIF. Not merely a gathering of Jewish leaders, or a chance to take a selfie with the ageing Nazi hunters Serge and Beate Klarsfeld, 
The dinner is a gathering of virtually everyone who matters in French public life, including nearly every sitting government minister. Although the main event is always an address by the French president, the point of the evening is to demonstrate that even the most universalist of republics can recognize that its citizens have their particular attachments. In keeping with Macron's taste for setting and spectacle, the first Creef dinner of his presidency, on the 7th of March 2018, was held beneath the Louvre pyramid. Once again, Macron used the Attal case to show he took the issue of contemporary antisemitism seriously. I took a stand by calling for the Justice Department to make clear the anti-Semitic dimension of Sarah Halimi's murder, he said, not without a tone of self-congratulation. By that point, the Paris prosecutor, François Molin, had ultimately decided to consider the killing as anti-Semitic. In his speech, Macron did not go on to discuss the Attal case in any more detail, falling back on abstract platitudes. We must never falter, we will never falter, in the denunciation of anti-Semitism and in the fight against this scourge. But two weeks later, on the 23rd of March 2018, Mireille Knoll, aged 85, another elderly Jewish woman and a survivor of the Veldiv Roundup, was stabbed 11 times in her apartment and left to burn in a failed arson attempt. The similarities to the Attal case were immediately striking. Knoll also lived in a public housing project in the 11th arrondissement. Authorities later confirmed that one of her alleged assailants was also a neighbour, also a young man in his late 20s and also a Muslim, this time of North African heritage. Members of Kunal's family later confirmed that she had known the young man, identified as Yassin Mihoub, since he was a boy, and that he had been in her apartment drinking port and chatting with Kunal earlier on the day of the murder. Mihoub was a known alcoholic with a history of psychiatric problems, but he had long enjoyed a good relationship with his elderly neighbour, Knoll's daughter-in-law, Jovinda, told me that in years past, when her mother-in-law was unwell, Mihub had helped her a lot. He was the one who helped put her to bed, she said. The news of Knoll's death broke the next day, via a small item in Le Parisien, noting that an 85-year-old woman had died in a mysterious fire. The day after that, on Sunday the 25th of March, two things happened that transformed a small fire in eastern Paris into a national scandal. The first was Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo announcing on Twitter that the victim had been a Holocaust survivor. The second was a Facebook post by Mayor Habib, a confidant of Benjamin Netanyahu's and a right-wing member of the French Parliament. Before authorities had released any information about the identities of the killers, Habib cast Kunal as a victim of the barbarism of an Islamist. He then situated her killing in the context of France's recent struggle with Islamist terrorism. It's the same barbarism that killed several Jewish children in Toulouse, slit the throat of a priest in Saint-Otienne-du-Rouvray, or a gendarme officer in Trebez, Habib wrote. The Trebez attack, in which four people were killed by a terrorist, included the gendarme Arnaud Beltram, happened on the same day as Canal's killing and was still receiving wall-to-wall coverage on all major networks. Canal's family, meanwhile, had also retained Gilles-William Goldenadel as their lawyer. He immediately sought to link the two alleged perpetrators. 
The two are Muslims who attacked with barbarity women who haven't done anything, he told me at the time. This time, the French state's response was different. By midday on the 26th of March, François Molin announced that the Paris prosecutor's office would investigate the death of Mireille Knoll as an act of anti-Semitic violence. On the 28th of March, Macron went even further, closing the investigation in the court of public opinion. Knoll, he said, was murdered because she was Jewish. In the days and weeks that followed the killing, there emerged a string of facts that did nothing to undermine the cruel intimacy of Knoll's killing. But that did complicate the motive long since ascribed to her alleged murderer, especially the allegation of Islamist anti-Semitism. For starters, Knoll had two assailants, the second of whom, Alex Karambakos, was neither Muslim nor of North African origin. Second, Mihub had no links to any jihadist organisation. In much of the French press, he has been treated as the principal suspect, although both he and Karambakos have since accused the other of having committed the actual murder, while each claiming to have only acted as the other's accomplice. Both are currently in prison, awaiting the conclusions of an ongoing investigation. Further complicating matters was the story that emerged about Mihub's personal history with Canal. In February 2017, Mihoop was imprisoned for having sexually assaulted the 12-year-old daughter of Canal's live-in carer. Mihoop was released from prison in September 2017 on a suspended sentence. And Karambakos, who he had met in jail, later told a panel of investigative judges that Mihoop was out for revenge, a claim authorities have not corroborated. He told her, You will pay. I wasn't at the burial of my sister, Karambakos reportedly said. But revenge seems an unlikely motive, as Knoll had never filed a complaint against him. It was Knoll's carer, the child's mother, who filed the complaints that ultimately landed Mahoub in prison. Even if Mahoub did kill Knoll out of some form of revenge, under the influence of alcohol, there may still have been an element of anti-Semitism to the act. What Zaguri, the psychiatrist in the Atal case, interpreted as the tragic influence of society's atmosphere and world events. One of Canal's sons, Daniel, believes there was, saying that the authorities would not have investigated the case as such if they did not have some evidence along those lines. In his interview with the judges, Karim Bakus also reportedly said that Mihub had anti-Semitic motivations and had screamed Allahu Akbar during the attack, an allegation widely reported in the French press as fact, despite the dubious source. Mihub's lawyer, Fabrice de Corodie, vehemently denies the charge, claiming that Karambakos was trying to shift the blame. The one motive that we can be sure was not involved was that of anti-Semitism, de Corody told me. Unlike Lucy Attal, Mireille Canal became an instant national martyr. On the 28th of March, the CRIF, along with several other Jewish organisations, planned a march in Paris in Canal's honour, from the Place de la Nation to her apartment in Avenue Philippe-Auguste. It was an astonishing sight. In a country often accused of indifference to the fate of its minority populations, here were tens of thousands of people marching down the Boulevard Voltaire, wearing buttons and brandishing signs that bore the face of a murdered Jew. In the crowd, I happened to bump into Fankilkraut, who was moved by the remarkable diversity we saw on the street. Many Jews felt abandoned by the national community as a whole, he told me then. 
but I believe today there will be people of all faiths here. That's very important. But a different, less harmonious narrative soon emerged. The month after the killing, the cases of Mireille Canol and the woman now known as Sarah Halimi became the catalysts for a blistering manifesto against the new anti-Semitism. This was an open letter signed by more than 250 French luminaries, including one former president, calling for French Muslims to demonstrate their fealty to the Republic and arguing that portions of the Quran should be banished to obscurity, which many took to mean redacted altogether. In response, 30 imams published a response in Le Monde, denouncing anti-Semitism, but also what they saw as the normalization of Islamophobia. Some have already seen a chance to incriminate an entire religion, the imams wrote. They no longer hesitate to say in public and in the media that it is the Quran itself that calls for murder. Corsia, France's chief rabbi, later told me that he regretted the phrasing of the original manifesto which he signed. What I would have preferred is that we would have made clearer the need for contextualization and interpretation rather than the total abrogation of this or that verse, he said referring to the call to edit portions of the Qur'an. Looking back on the affair, Danielle Knoll feels that an opportunity was missed. On a rainy October afternoon, he received me for tea at the small apartment he shares with Jovinda, his Catholic Filipina wife, in a suburb of Paris not far from Orly Airport. I asked him how he felt seeing his mother transformed into a national symbol, a metaphor for the threat of Islamist anti-Semitism even if there was little evidence her killer had been an Islamist. The culprit was a Muslim, but he doesn't represent the entire Muslim religion, Kunal said. He was particularly moved by the diversity of the crowd at the march, and what he saw as a collective sense that his mother could be anyone's grandmother. But to say she's a symbol? I'm not sure about that. Kunal has attempted to take back control of the narrative, publishing a book in November that explores the values by which his mother lived rather than the circumstances in which he died. It is anything but a testament to the incompatibility of Islam with the French Republic, and he refuses to allow his mother's death to be presented as the failure of vivre ensemble, the goal of greater social cohesion in an increasingly diverse society, which, as he sees it, corresponds to how his mother, the person, not the victim, understood the world. The Canal family, he writes, has Jewish and non-Jewish members from France, the Philippines, Canada and Israel. Vive Ensemble could be the title of our family album. To honour his mother's memory, he is also in the process of founding the Mireille Canal Association, an organisation that will combat loneliness among the elderly and seek to tackle hatred among young people. The association's vice-president, he told me, is a Moroccan woman and a Muslim. Our parents taught us one thing, which can seem naive, but which we continue to cherish, he writes in his book. There are no borders for the heart, least of all religion. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. This is The Guardian.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.